On December 6, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a talk organized by the Program on Crisis Leadership titled Innovations in Disaster Management, the Use of Technology in Crisis Response, Humanitarian Relief, and Disaster Recovery. Panelists included Doug Allers, Senior Fellow with the Program on Crisis Leadership and founder of the Broadmoor Project and Recupera Chile Project, Vincenzo Boletino, Director of the Resilient Communities Program at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative, and Payush Tawari, founder of Save Life Foundation and an HKS mid-career student. This talk was moderated by Dutch Leonard, faculty co-director of the Program on Crisis Leadership, George F. Baker, Jr., Professor of Public Management at HKS, and Elliot I. Snyder and Family Professor of Business Administration at HBS. All right, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to all of you. Well, that was a happy greeting. Good afternoon, everyone. Well, thank you. It's nice to see you all here. Uh, so we're going to do something incredibly unusual and start a Kennedy School event actually at the hour uh, that it's... Uh, scheduled to start, which is 3.30. Uh, thank you all for being here, and uh, welcome to this, I think, very interesting event. My name is Dutch Leonard, and it's my privilege to be the co-chair of the program on crisis leadership here at Harvard Kennedy School, along with my partner in this, Arne Howitt, who is the other co-chair of the program on crisis leadership. And we're pleased to have the opportunity to act as host today for an event which actually was invented by others. And I want to begin, before we start with anything, and uh, say thank you to the people who've made it possible for us to be here today. Uh, first of all, the driving engine behind the idea for this and the formulation and a lot of the legwork of getting uh, our three very distinguished panelists all assembled in the same place at the same time, which is something of a miracle, actually, uh, is Natalie Hall, who's a joint student here at the Kennedy School and the Harvard Business School. And Natalie, thank you for everything you did to make this uh, possible for all of us. And also the two leaders of our uh, student uh, enterprise in the Kennedy School around crisis management, Yoko Okura and Yang Lee, also were very helpful in making this happen. And finally, uh, David Giles, who makes everything happen around here. Is, uh, is, so, so please join me in thanking these people for making all of this happen. So what we're here to talk about today is the challenge of technology and innovation in disaster management. Uh, this is an incredibly important subject. Uh, we, one of the ways we predict uh, where you're going to see a revolution is if you see a revolution in some uh, technology that hasn't been applied yet in a given area, expect a revolution in that new area. And uh, that's, I think, what we're starting to see in various different aspects of disaster management, in crisis response, and in other forms of planning, and not just in the moment, but actually in the recovery stage as well. Um, and we have a very distinguished panel with us this afternoon to help us talk about that. And we're going to look at all three of these different elements, uh, from the sort of more immediate, uh, sort of what do you do, how do you uh, provide better services, uh, when someone has an emergency, uh, to the larger scale uh, and a little bit longer term response, the humanitarian response, for example, and then finally to the really longer term, the process of recovery. So what role does technology play in each of these areas? What kinds of new things have we seen and what kinds of future uh, other things might we see in this general domain? Uh, so that's what we're, our speakers are going to uh, help us to think about today. Um, I'm going to say a few words about each of them, but only a few, because I think you'd probably rather hear from them than about them. Uh, and I thought what we might do, this is a, a, an order of battle uh, uh, kind of discussion, that is to say how we're going to proceed. So if you're from the Kennedy School, it's a theory of operations. If you're from the business school, it's a business plan uh, for the afternoon. Uh, what I thought we might do is to ask each of the speakers in turn to take a few minutes and say what 
what they've done in this domain, how technology has been applied, and to give us some insights about that. Then I might ask them a question or two and just interact a little bit with them, and then we'll go to your questions. So be ready with your questions for them uh, as, you're, as you're going along and, and uh, hearing from them. Um, so that's, that's our, our general plan. Um, and I thought, and this was a suggestion David made about, uh, well, there's lots of different ways in which we could order uh, the discussion with these three distinguished uh, speakers. Uh, but I thought we might start with the micro and work our way out uh, to the longer term and toward uh, disaster management. That means, uh, Piyush, that we're going to start with you. Uh, Piyush Tiwari is the uh, CEO of the Save Life Foundation, uh, a nonprofit, non-governmental organization that is working on improving road safety. Uh, Piyush has improved road safety in a variety of different ways in India. Uh, he has proposed, and it was the um, motive force behind a new Good Samaritan law, which makes it much easier and, and um, more uh, accommodating for people to intervene when they see an event uh, take place. Uh, he's also worked on the application of technology, mobile technology, to help provide faster response when, there are, when emergencies take place. And he's also been working on uh, a, a road safety law that has now been introduced in, in Parliament. So he's, uh, he's doing what we teach in the program on crisis leadership, which is it's a full court press. Uh, if you want to work on safety and risk management and reducing damage in the world, uh, there are a whole variety of different points of intervention. And you should consider each, and you should intervene at the points where you're going to get the most uh, possible advantage from the least amount of work. Um, so, Piyush, let's go to you and have you tell us a little bit about what you've been up to, and then I'll introduce Enzo and Doug in turn, and we'll continue the conversation. So please, over to you, Piyush. Sure. Just, uh... Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for uh, having me here. Uh, thanks, Natalie, uh, the PIC, uh, as well as the Ash Center for uh, hosting this. Um, I actually got involved uh, with uh, this work by chance. I was... Uh, I was um, I started my career with the with the government, uh, with the Prime Minister's office in India. Uh, worked on nation brand building, so I was uh, flying around the world, promoting India as a investment destination. Um, uh, worked on various deals, worked with uh, various trade negotiations. Uh, moved on to private equity, uh, where I uh, ended up heading a fund um, focused on India and China, um, and uh, that was very exciting because I was building new companies, investing in new stuff. Um, uh, and then uh, on one day, fifth um, uh, April. Uh, 2007, uh, I was on my way back uh, from work uh, when I got a call from my father um, and he told me that um, Piyush, uh, uh, you know, your cousin Shivam uh, has met with a, with a crash, uh, you know, with a road crash and that he's, uh, he's critically injured and with that, that we need to rush to the hospital to uh, see um, how he's doing. Um, so I said yes. I'm, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start rushing. And um, Shivam for me was uh, not just a cousin. Uh, he was 16 years old, uh, full of life, feisty uh, guy who wanted to make it big. Uh, family was not doing so well, so he, uh, you know, was really working hard. Uh, so on, in him, um, I saw a reflection of myself. Uh, I, you know, I saw in him a guy who wanted to, uh, you know, work hard, uh, do well, and get his family out of uh, whatever circumstances that they were in. Uh, just as I was uh, making my way in about 10 minutes or so, I got another call uh, from my dad uh, informing me that uh, Shivam had died. Uh, and that um, uh, shook me uh, tremendously, uh, so much so that I had to pull over, uh, leave my car, 
uh, where it was. I couldn't drive. And I took a taxi uh, back home. Uh, what, uh, you know, after all of that, uh, the, the formalities and everything uh, were over, um, I decided to go to the site of the, of the crash and figure out what had really happened. And what I discovered uh, basically completely horrified me. So what I learned was that after being hit by a car, uh, he managed to drag himself to the side of the road, uh, and he sat uh, next to a tree uh, where he basically, uh, this was 3.30 in the afternoon, uh, he was coming back from school, uh, where he basically asked uh, passers-by and bystanders for help. Um, he pleaded them. Uh, a lot of people stopped. A lot of people came towards him. But nobody did anything that could help him. Nobody uh, even uh, called the police. Uh, and he bled to death on, on the side of the road. Um, so when I discovered that, I, uh, it became an unacceptable uh, situation for me, uh, that how could we allow uh, someone to just um, just go away like that, uh, not even make an attempt to, to help someone uh, who's in distress. Um, and I was so shaken that I decided to take some time off from work, and I traveled across the country. Um, I met lawyers, police officers, doctors, other families uh, to try and figure out what was really uh, going on uh, in India at that point of time. And I discovered three things. I discovered that uh, my cousin's case was not isolated, that a lot of people uh, uh, died uh, despite uh, treatable injuries, uh, waiting for help. Uh, the second thing I discovered was that in the previous decade alone, uh, 1.2 million people had been killed in road crashes in India. Uh, on an average, if I talk about the daily scenario, imagine a fully loaded A380 crashing every single day with about 400 people on it. Uh, so it was, it was a huge disaster, and it wasn't getting the kind of attention that it deserved. And the third thing I discovered was that people did not help uh, others in distress because of apathy. People did not help others because of a systemic fear of the police and legal system that existed in India at that point of time. Um, in many situations, good Samaritans who had helped uh, an injured person uh, had been blamed for the incident itself. Uh, in many cases, uh, uh, good Samaritans would be dragged to the court for a couple of decades uh, so they could uh, you know, serve as witnesses, but it would destroy their lives completely. They couldn't move out of the city where they were, uh, and they'd have to you know, do, do this again and again. So uh, at that point of time, I decided to do something about it, and I established the Save Life Foundation. Uh, I continued to work, um, uh, work in my corporate job and do save life because uh, a large part of save life's operations, and I'll talk about that, uh, was funded by my, my salary to start with. Uh, so we started with the police. Uh, and the reason we started with the police was not just because it was the police that people were most afraid of uh, when they would help somebody, uh, but also because given the absence of ambulances in India uh, at that point of time, it was the police who would carry many victims to hospital. Uh, and But unfortunately, they could not intervene during that you know, during their transport. So we started uh, by training the police in basic trauma care skills. So we taught them CPR, bleeding control, and just how to immobilize C-spine so they could shift somebody safely in any kind of uh, vehicle with, with limited resources. Uh, and that uh, really became a point for us to build our credibility because uh, the, the Indian police, which was typically known to be a brutal force, suddenly had its image changing as a life-saving force. 
Uh, and in doing that, and in getting people, uh, reviving people who were uh, who were uh, very very critically injured and sometimes with no pulse, uh, they have started to play a very very crucial uh, role. Uh, we expanded the program to select set of volunteers, but couldn't do a lot because people were afraid to get involved, as I had mentioned earlier. Uh, but one of the things we did was that we didn't just want to train people and let them be. We wanted to make sure that every trained person is able to respond to, uh, to, to a crisis. So let me ask a question here. How many of you are trained in first aid? Is there any way that you would get to know if just outside on the main road there's a crash? or if somebody is lying injured. So we have 20 people who are trained in first aid, but there is no way for them to get to know what is really going on just outside this building, right? And that was the scenario uh, even in India. So what we did was we said, we've trained about 10,000 people. How do we bring them onto the same platform? How do we actually get them to utilize their skills uh, on, the, on, you know, on the scene uh, where they are required? So we built... Uh, in partnership with London Air Ambulance, um, a mobile application that basically allowed uh, people to uh, be alerted about a crash and or about any emergency and reach the scene of the incident. Um, I'll show you a small demo. So this is the app. Uh, so here's the app. If I press a button and ask for help, it basically sends out an alert in a three-mile radius and try and tracks uh, first responders who are who are available in that area. So imagine all of you being on that on that system, and if there's an incident just outside, you get to know about that. And even if one or two people of you respond to the scene, we have at least some care which is reaching an injured person. Now this becomes extremely critical in a system where there aren't any ambulances or aren't any competent ambulances that are going to arrive at you know at the scene soon enough. Uh, so that's what uh, the tech uh, piece was. This is how we got uh, people integrated. Uh, the rollout of this is uh, is still going on, uh, but the reason the rollout was held back was because of the of the fear of legal and, and procedural hassles. Uh, and that is when I decided to quit my job and uh, and join Save Life full time because it was very important to build a campaign that would address the systemic issue that existed in India at that point of time. Uh, we got lucky. Uh, NPR decided to talk about us. Uh, Michael Bloomberg heard about us, <laughs> and some money landed, uh, and we were able to uh, build a team and uh, start work. So uh, what I essentially did was uh, we built a campaign around this. I met with policymakers, uh, interacted with media, got people on the streets. Basically, that's really what moved things uh, with, with the policymakers. And our ask really was that we wanted a good Samaritan law for India that would insulate entirely those who come forward to help injured people from any kind of legal or procedural hassles. Preservation of life is paramount, and nothing should come in the way of preserving that life, uh, even if that's a law or a legal procedure. Uh, so the fight went on for about four years, and on 30th of March uh, this year, India got uh, its Good Samaritan Law, uh, which basically insulates uh, uh, people from any kind of hassles. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it gives uh, benefit of doubt uh, to people who are helping uh, those who are injured. If you are a witness, you don't have to go to the court for 20 years. Uh, your examination will happen in a single sitting in a single day, and if you want, via video conferencing as well. So you don't have to go to the court uh, at all if you uh, don't wish to. Um, 
so this is really what we did. And today now we are in a situation where we can now go ahead and train hundreds of thousands of people and bring them onto this technology platform so that they can be mobilized to respond. Fortunately, India has... Um, uh, many states now have an ambulance service, uh, but we also have crazy congestion on our roads. Uh, so it means that uh, Good Samaritans can now complement ambulance services. They can act as a pre-ambulance intervention where they are sustaining a life till the time formal care arrives on scene. Um, and of course, uh, like uh, it was mentioned, we have now expanded our work to prevention. We are doing a lot of uh, road safety legislation work. So the idea is how do you prevent crashes themselves? And that's really the next uh, goal. The bill is now in the parliament. It got introduced a month ago. And I'm hoping that by March, uh, it gets passed uh, by the parliament. Uh, there are some, some challenges uh, and lobbies who are not very happy with us. But hopefully, we'll, we'll overcome that and, and have the law uh, passed. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Piyush, both for an interesting discussion and also for a model of being on time and within the uh, allotted speaker time. Thank you for that. Uh, so one of the themes, I think, for the afternoon is that uh, the technology problem is usually not the technology. Uh, technology is an enabling uh, process, and the challenge is the people, the systems, the government. And I think that's going to turn out to be true as we look at humanitarian <coughs> relief as well. Uh, Enzel Bolatino is now the director of the Resilient Communities Program at the Harvard Humanitarian uh, Initiative. Uh, he was formerly the executive director of HHI and now is working on the re this resilience uh, component of it. Um, he is a, a world-recognized expert on issues issues of the management of humanitarian relief and particularly the challenges of trying to protect humanitarian workers in conflict zones and in civilian military relations in that setting, uh, which is a uh, hugely complicated and hugely important set of issues, obviously, for the safety of, of all concerned. Um, and he's going to tell us a little bit about the, some of the work that he's done and the way in which technology enables that. And so thank you. I'm thank you very much, here. Dutch. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you all this afternoon, and it's great to be back. Uh, with Arn and, and with Doug, uh, two uh, people that I went to Nepal with uh, to look at the reconstruction plans uh, that the government had uh, underway just in the aftermath um, of the earthquake. Um, that was an incredible uh, presentation. I really uh, enjoyed it. Really a fascinating case, and congratulations for the work you've done. Um, so I'm, I'm going to take this from a single case to a, a many case uh, um, level of analysis uh, and looking at how technology is being used in the humanitarian field um, and talking a little bit about um, uh, some of the benefits, uh, some of the constraints, some of the uh, challenges of using technology in that domain. Um, now, I think one of the things that came out and uh, that I agree with entirely is that we can't separate technology itself and or its role, particular role in technical terms in the way it's used from its embeddedness in the social, uh, economic, uh, and everyday life of the individuals um, that are using it. So technology is certainly not a panacea, but it is an enabler, but it can be blocked if you don't take into account um, the social dynamics uh, and the social fabric of the system in which it's embedded. So let me just really briefly for the maybe one or two of you who aren't completely familiar with this, um, run you very quickly through the uh, international humanitarian system is made up of um, some of these are very traditional actors, right? The UN system, the International Federation of the Red Cross, um, the International Committee of the Red Cross, and a whole host of international non-governmental organizations, as well as local communities and non-governmental organizations that 
exist within each of the countries where disasters happen. This is sort of the traditional humanitarian community, if you will. In recent years, it's been um, <coughs> supplemented by uh, and influenced by and joined by a whole host, and this is just a smattering of them, this is not a comprehensive list by any means, of technical companies, largely technical companies, that have a social good, uh, social justice and humanitarian uh, action perspective on the world. And they've come together in a variety of different ways to do a variety of different things in humanitarian settings. And they're changing the way in which humanitarian action actually takes place by complementing the work of more traditional humanitarian agencies. Now, I want to um, simply say again that we can't understand the technology without understanding the context in which it takes place, and we have to understand also what is driving and restraining the actors that are operating in these environments. So in the international humanitarian system, we have a set of core principles that agencies are governed by. Um, they happen to be a set of core principles, humanity, impartiality, independence, and neutrality. I'm sure you're all very familiar with these, or most of you will be, so I won't um, dwell on them, but you're free to ask me about them later. Uh, and a code of, contact, code of conduct that governs their actions. There are also uh, a whole host of voluntary uh, and self-regulated sets of standards that have been developed in various domains within the humanitarian field. This has been generally lacking, but is in the process of being developed for technical and technology um, more generally and its use in humanitarian settings. So there's a lot of focus now on developing standards for the use of technology in these settings. And they would join a whole number of different other standards that already exist. Now, how is technology being used in the humanitarian setting? In a whole variety of ways. Um, it's being used by individual people, by having connectivity on their phones. Um, uh, it's being used by humanitarian agencies in a variety of ways. Um, many are adopting the use of drones. Private companies are. Humanitarian agencies are. Governments do uh, for doing any one of a number of things. Surveying areas to assess damage um, in the aftermath of a disaster. Identifying where populations are. Um, so that can be done by both using both satellite imagery and uh, drone imagery, um, identifying where um, there are potential obstacles for delivering aid from blocked roads, etc. Um, uh, I'm happy to have uh, some colleagues in the room who have uh, worked with uh, a program at the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative called the uh, Signal Program on Human Security and Technology, uh, which is, uh, amongst many other things, developing uh, standards around the uses of uh, technology in humanitarian settings and also standards for identifying what we can and can't do with these technologies in terms of delivery of assistance. Um, and they join a number of other organizations that are involved in very um, similar activities. Um, there are, of course, uh, and I only listed a number of ways in which technology is being used. It's being used and thought about to deliver uh, cargo in really uh, hard or difficult situations to reach. It's being used for all kinds of mapping. Uh, it's being used for communications, uh, et cetera. Um, there are issues around um, the ethical use of technology, and this is a, a large and emerging conversation. Uh, I give you just one example here. This is not uh, an Ebola-affected country. It was just an image of 
um, uh, call data records uh, from France, but it, I just put it up there as, as a way of giving you an image of uh, technology that was used in uh, and during uh, the response to the Ebola crisis, where call record data was used to identify uh, people's movements, um, and, and in particular, whether they could trace or identify uh, the movement or this potentially the spread, potential spread of Ebola. Um, Sean McDonald wrote an excellent piece um, uh, looking at the ethical implications of the use um, of those data, because in almost every one of these cases, right, no one is no one of the people whose records were used was consulted about um, the use of that data or the privacy or the privacy violations associated with that. So, so it has enormous implications, uh, and this is just in one domain. But each use of these technologies has potential implications, um, and the ethical uh, aspects of it have to be considered. Um, because we have a limited amount of time, I'm only going to go into one interesting use of technology um, uh, in the aftermath of the earthquake in Nepal. And I've talked about this not because it is better or worse than any of the other examples, but because I was there briefly and was able to uh, witness it firsthand. So in the aftermath of the uh, earthquake, as we know, it uh, devastated parts of Kathmandu, and in particular, um, several of the uh, districts of the Nepal, uh, Sindhapalchak and Gorkha in particular, but a number of others as well, um, completely leveling homes uh, in many of the provinces, um, uh, doing enormous damage, leveling you know upwards of 80% of the structures. Now, part of this is, um, and this goes again back to sort of the, so the social conditions, is that building codes were not followed, right? So. Technology is not going to resolve those sorts of things. That's identifying what are the sort of social changes that need to be made so that we can use technology to its greatest benefit but not rely on it as a way of fixing something that needs a social solution. And so that's the context in which it happens. And then technology is used in a variety of ways. It's certainly used heavily by search and rescue teams that were there on the ground in the first days um, after the earthquake happened, um, using a variety of different um, platforms with uh, infrared and other sensors to try to identify where um, people that were still alive might be buried. Uh, and these teams fanned out across um, uh, Nepal and especially in and around Kathmandu. Um, so here's another uh, issue that uh, you have multiple uh, teams, both search and rescue, and then ultimately also uh, foreign medical teams um, that uh, will uh, seek to meet the immediate needs of uh, people affected by the disaster. Um, technology is really needed to improve the way these or these organizations and teams communicate and coordinate. Um, that is still it continues to be a challenge. It's a lot better than certainly a lot better than it used to be. Um, but remains uh, a challenge, and you still have situations where uh, uh, teams will deploy only to find that another team is already in that area, thereby wasting you know, time and resources. Um, that happened in, in some uh, cases. Um, so one really interesting uh, case for the use of technology in Nepal uh, uh, was, happened with uh, a group. I'm going to skip actually ahead because I realize it's going to take me a little bit of time too much time, um, uh, more time than I have to do this. Um, there was a, an organization called uh, Kathmandu Living Labs. Uh, they were a social um, uh, civil society organization within, uh, based in Kathmandu, uh, that had already been doing mapping projects uh, looking at Kathmandu Valley. Um, when the earthquake happened, uh, this team assembled a group of volunteers 
uh, and within days took an Ushahidi instance. Ushahidi was this crowdsourcing platform. Uh, they tailored it for their needs and created what was called Quake Maps, and they were able to crowdsource, take information from people from around Nepal to identify what was happening to whom, where, and when ar around Nepal in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake. Now, this wasn't new. This happened in Haiti. Uh, it happened in the Philippines. But what was really interesting uh, was that for the first time that I'm aware, and in these numbers, uh, the military of Nepal, which is the primary responder in Nepal for disasters, was utilizing that information for uh, responding to dozens, hundreds even, um, I think 300-something different, I think the number is 381 different um, incidents that were reported through uh, Quake Map. That's incredible. Um, that, so in the past, we had heard anecdotes about people saying, wow, this is really an important new source of information. But never have I seen a primary responder utilizing crowdsourced information to determine which incidents they were, prioritize which incidents they were going to respond to. So this is incredible. So this is sort of laying out where um, uh, things were being uh, uh, where incidents were actually happening and being recorded um, through Quake Map, uh, where the Nepal uh, military uh, was deployed, and then which uh, uh, actual incidents that they responded to. That is a huge uh, change in the way primary responders get information in order to uh, uh, respond to incidents um, in, in a humanitarian setting. Um, the benefit of this in terms of lessons learned is that we were able to bring back um, the, this is uh, General Rana, who's the head of the um, uh, Nepal military at the time um, of the earthquake, uh, and bring him uh, to Harvard to meet uh, the head of Kathmandu Living Labs uh, and uh, have a conversation about how they could uh, bring these, bring their two efforts together in a more systematic way and to start looking at sort of prevention and preparedness uh, in a way that is uh, forward-looking as opposed to so simply responding, which was amazing. They had never met before, even though their two organizations worked so closely together. Um, so it was great to um, be able to make that happen. Um, that's one very simple, small example. There are literally dozens um, in the humanitarian setting, but I will leave uh, the presentation at that because I think I've already taken up my time. Thank you. Thanks very much, Enzo. That's great. So we turn now to our very own Doug Allers. I say our very own. Uh, Doug Allers is many things to many people, but one of the things that he has, is now is a senior fellow as in the Program for Crisis Leadership, uh, a role which we're delighted to see him whenever it's possible. Uh, Doug was for a number of years a member of our faculty and developed the uh, school's first courses on recovery. He also was the uh, primary engine behind the Broadmoor Project, which connected people at the Kennedy School and also the business school in the larger Harvard community uh, to people in New Orleans after, to a particular neighborhood in New Orleans after uh, Hurricane Katrina. And it was a project that had a long and actually continuing life and in which many students here had unbelievable experiences of going down and spending a week uh, all under Doug's uh, general tutelage and organization in, in phenomenal opportunities 
both to be able to contribute because of what Doug had organized, but also uh, to learn about what was going on. And I, th I think uh, we have always been uh, deeply grateful for his involvement in that and, and for his involvement with us in uh, taking us along in that. Uh, he also was the engine behind uh, Rucopera uh, Chile, uh, which is the uh, a project of the uh, David Rockefeller Center uh, at, in the aftermath of the Concepcion uh, earthquake and tsunami uh, in Chile. Um, so Doug has a long history of working on the, in effect, the the backside. Not only, but uh, but a, a particular feature for him has been working on recovery issues uh, over time, and he's done that in a variety of different locations. And what he's going to talk about this afternoon is uh, actually software package that he developed based on uh, the Salesforce uh, underlying engine uh, to try to connect people and resources in the aftermath of a disaster and so as to enhance the rate of recovery. Uh, Doug, we're always delighted to have you here. Uh, no, but no more than uh, we are today. So great. Well, thank you. So as as Dutch said, uh, my area of, of expertise is disaster recovery, sort of the longer term approach of, of putting communities back together. Um, and I want to talk to you a little bit about case management software systems or case management software uh, tools as a way to, pl uh, to apply technology to the disaster recovery uh, uh, area. Um, so first uh, is to really sort of understand recovery, we have to, to think of it as fundamentally a matching problem. It's a, a matching problem of matching individual needs with disaster assistance resources. And those resources may be public, they may be private, they may be from government agencies, nonprofits, volunteer groups, or even private providers for profit. Um, so on the needs side, you have individuals that have individual sets of, of needs, and the needs of individuals vary from one individual to the next. And on the uh, resources side, you have uh, resources delivered through service providers, as I said, so it could be government agencies, insurance companies, uh, a hospital providing uh, medical uh, things, NGOs, uh, etc. And each uh, service provider um, it provides usually one or a few related services or, or resources uh, very much in sort of topic areas, so healthcare or uh, housing, for, for example. And one of the big challenges is an efficient match between needs and resources uh, for people to be able to, to recover after a disaster. Um, so if we think of our service delivery system for uh, disaster recovery assistance, it's really very much a siloed approach or an organization-facing approach to, um, to the way we provision and, and deliver services. Uh, and this is really done to optimize service delivery. So an organization like Habitat for Humanity is focused on one thing, efficient delivery of housing versus Meals on Wheels is focused on efficient delivery of, uh, of meals and not doing legal assistance or building houses. Um, so this is a very efficient approach to the way uh, that we deliver services. However, it creates a major problem for the individual who has to navigate all of these silos, especially for individuals after a disaster that have a wide range of, of needs that span the, the, the gamut from... Uh, 
uh, everything from employment assistance needs to uh, needs helping uh, navigate insurance and insurance claims to housing repair needs to child care needs to transportation needs. Um, so it's really uh, sort of left to, to the individual to navigate the system and find the match of uh, the services that, that match their needs. But also service providers have, uh, their programs all have sets of rules and eligibility criteria. So it's not just finding a housing provider, but it's also finding a service provider that has a program that the individual actually is matched to the, the elig and is eligible for. Um, the problem is that people who navigate this system, which is a pull system, uh, uh, actually fare fairly well in the process and are, are advantaged. But people who have challenges navigating the system are disproportionately disadvantaged and often fall through the cracks. So we advocate a very different approach, which is a client-facing or customer-centric approach to the the problem. Now, we're not out to change service delivery. Again, it's optimized for efficient and effective uh, service delivery. But in cases like this where you have matching problems, uh, where there's a, a high degree of inefficiency in that matching, often around information um, asymmetry, uh, what you uh, a common solution is to put in place uh, an intermediary or the process of intermediation, a broker, an agent, etc., that acts as a bridge between the, the two parties that creates for much more efficient uh, matching. Uh, in the case of disaster recovery, we advocate for a case manager as that person. The case manager assists the residents in navigating those silos of disaster as assistance programs. And in the, uh, what a case manager does is assign a client or several clients, but then works that single case manager will work with that client across all their needs from employment assistance to uh, senior service uh, needs to uh, housing needs, et cetera. So what does a case manager do? A case manager uh, first starts and does a comprehensive needs assessment for an individual client. They work with the client uh, to uh, educate them on the uh, available resources and assistance programs that are out there. Uh, they uh, assemble the team of service providers that meet those specific needs of that individual. Um, they do a lot of problem solving, which is probably the way they spend about 80% of, of, of their day. Uh, they also are the implementer and coordinator of the care services. Now, they don't actually deliver the services. Those are delivered through the service providers, but they become the coordinator of that process. And a very important uh, uh, component of case management systems is the case manager works to transition the client to autonomy and self-care. Um, so 
in these kinds of uh, matching problems where you uh, have a high degree of inefficiency in the, the natural marketplace of, of matching and you are putting in place an, an uh, intermediary, technology is a perfect solution for automating the intermediary. Uh, now, often you can, in certain cases, fully automate the process. Uh, but in the case of disaster recovery, we still advocate for an in-person case manager, but then using software and technology to really make the um, uh, process and workflow for the uh, case manager much more effective and efficient, and also to allow a case manager to take on larger uh, caseloads. Um, so we've done a lot of work in this field in uh, in uh, both New Orleans and in Chile on the Salesforce uh, program through a grant from Salesforce. Um, so what does a, a software case management system look like for a disaster recovery manager? Uh, the first thing is it's fundamentally a workflow management tool. Uh, so uh, the first thing a case manager uh, logs on is sees all the tasks that they have in front of them for all of the, the cases they're working on so that uh, and it tracks and manages the, the uh, task or workflow um, so that nothing drops through the cracks in the case management process. Um, the heart of the case management system, though, is the case file, uh, which are the records on uh, each of the cases. And a case file can be attached to an individual, it could be attached to a household, or to a physical property. Um, the case file is really where all of the needs are recorded and, and stored for either that household, individual, or, or property. So everything from legal assistance to healthcare needs to mental health care needs to housing needs, etc. Also in the case file are uh, a record of all of the assistance that a uh, individual household or property have, have received. So on the one hand, you have the needs recorded, but you also have the assistance that has been received, whether, regardless of source, whether it's insurance or uh, FEMA, FEMA's individual assistance program uh, through the Red Cross or Salvation Army, etc. And because you have both needs and what has been received in assistance, it also gives you uh, what the gaps are and allows the disaster recovery manager, the case manager, to create a recovery plan for the individual to fill those gaps. Um, the case record also has all of the tasks or open activities that uh, for an individual client that need to be done to uh, to meet the needs uh, going forward, as well as an activity history so a case manager can see all the steps that have been taken in the past on behalf of a client for, for uh, uh, need resolution. Um, and there's an ability to attach documents, digital documents, so you can do things like pull up pictures of the, the resident's house um, or their tax return. Um, this is actually very important because most disaster assistance programs, whether they're from uh, government or through uh, NGOs, uh, require huge stacks of supporting documents as part of the application process. This is a huge burden. Uh, it's very 
confusing to the, the, to the resident, to the individual who's having to put all this together. So what happens is once it's gathered and can go into the system, it's there forever. So it can be used for multiple applications uh, without having to go through the, the process again. So making a more efficient process. And very similarly with applications, uh, many of the disaster assistance programs are standard from disaster to disaster. And uh, so the system has built in uh, applications that can basically, the case manager can just touch a button and it generates the application, populating the fields of the application with the data from the, the database and really makes a very efficient uh, application process for individuals for and allows for apl quick applications to many different disaster assistance programs on, on behalf of individuals. So that's just a very uh, quick uh, sort of tip of the iceberg look at the way that software can be used to help uh, automate the process for case management uh, and help case managers uh, create a much more efficient method of matching uh, individual needs with the disaster recovery resources available. So, thanks. Thank you, Doug. That's great. So I'm struck, actually, by all three of these about how each of them is an information play of one form or another, which is not too surprising because one of the things that technology enables is the exchange of information. So if you can figure out who needs what information. So, Doug, I'm really struck uh, in, in your description of this uh, by how similar this is to the way you would describe the health system uh, because the health system is also organized by provider, silo, and the person who is... So who do we give the system integration problem to, the one who's supposed to figure out... How which silos to go to. The sick one who knows the least. Uh, the, and that, that makes absolutely no sense. And so case management has actually been something we've uh, tried to develop in the healthcare area as well. And in fact, I think what you did here was to write an electronic medical form uh, in Salesforce. Is that, would that be a fair, <laughs> that, would that be a fair description? That's a fair... Uh, <laughs> and, and so... Uh, so it sounds like the technology is not really the challenge. So this is actually what I wanted to put to all three of you. Uh, it sounds like in each case, the, the major challenges were not so much the constraint of being able to make the technology do what you needed to do, but being able to get the, the people and organizations to want this and to, to be willing to participate. So let me just ask each of you in turn, uh, what was the thing that was unexpectedly the most difficult, uh, you know, that you sort of hadn't anticipated would be difficult that turned out to be? Any of you can start, or, or I'll nominate someone. Yeah, I'll, I mean, sure. I'm not sure which case is the most difficult, but I do think it's 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 a factor of both the technology itself and limits to the technology, mm. as well as, but probably more importantly, the context in which it's being used. So both understanding the environment and the aspects of the environment in which you're using the technology, the laws and regulations for using the technology, and sort of the, the standards and uh, ethical guidelines for its use. But on the other hand, for something, there are always potential limits to the, to the technology. For phones, it's going to be whether there's service in that particular area and whether that service extends everywhere. For drones, it will be something like the flight distance of the drone uh, and can you get from the, the point of uh, uh, where the thing that you need to deliver to the to the endpoint to the person in need or can you get a drone to fly over a place that that is needed if it's if it's really far away um, but so I think with each with with each of these there are some limits to the technology itself but it's probably uh, it it is a smaller problem and one that's more quickly resolved than some of these other issues 
Um, I don't know which is the most difficult. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't have a good example of, of something. Let me think about something unexpected okay. and if I can come up no, with it. But actually, there's a really yeah. interesting insight in what you just said. Because if we ask, okay, so how do we intervene to make this better? You know, how, how well could, could we do that would make this easier? And, and I, I think what you just said is that the, the people that you need are people who do understand the technology and can understand what the technology's limits are and the, what it enables and what it doesn't, yeah. but who also have a patience to be able to figure out what's the regulatory regime in which we're operating, what are the rules and other aspects. So it's people. It's it's really system integrators. It's people who can look across yeah. the whole system you're trying to build would be the high-value folks. Now, the reason I draw attention to that is because I, th I think that's who Kennedy School students are. Uh, we force people to take courses across a wide variety of areas. They come from a lot of backgrounds. And if you ask me if there's a single particular thing that Kennedy School students are better at than almost anybody, it's the ability to work across the seams of different organizations and different challenges and put that kind of perspective together. So I think that, and that's essentially, I think, what you just said you need here. So, uh, Doug and, and Piyush, does that ring right for you as well? Um, yeah, I, for, uh, for us, the technology was the easy part. The, the more difficult thing, and actually getting funding to develop the technology was the easy part. The uh, more difficult challenge that we've had is on the actual hiring of case managers and the funding for getting uh, funding for the the people on the ground to use this the mm. technology and, and the systems uh, we've done very well with that but it's all it, but it's been a huge challenge and we've sort of had to cobble it together there haven't been the uh, the sort of we've gotten some support from FEMA in New Orleans a little support from the Chilean government in, in Chile, but mostly it's been cobbled together as opposed to... And, and what's uh, the problem there? Is it that because what these people are doing is making the system more effective, not less expensive? Uh, that's part of it. In fact, they might make it more expensive. As well as because most of the service providers are in their own silo, right. uh, no one's looking, there are very few people uh, uh, when it comes to disaster recovery that actually look across the whole spectrum. Even government itself is is very broken up. So HUD really doesn't care about what's going on with SBA loans, and SBA could care less about what's going on with, uh, with you know, uh, HUD's community uh, development block grants. So they don't see the value of why it would be important to have somebody who knew, understood all these things and right. put it together. Yeah, very interesting. Piyush? Uh, so we've had, we've had two sets of challenges. One has been, uh, one has been integration with, with existing systems. So you have a system where you are learning, uh, you know, trained volunteers and, uh, you know, so on and so forth. And then there's a system that, uh, that's a police system. And which is not integrated with this system specifically. And there is a, wherever it exists, there is an ambulance system. So one of our challenges has been to try and integrate what we have with other systems. Mm. And uh, in some cities, we've had success where the police is now also operating on our, on our, on our system in addition to their, uh, their their phone system, which is the system that you call. So, uh, so that's that's one. Uh, the second big challenge uh, is, is 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 the human factor, which is uh, in disaster response, especially if you're mobilizing common citizens, uh, which is the case in our case. Uh, attrition is huge. 
because uh, you know these are not these are not people who who've been trained for five years dissecting bodies and you know being exposed to blood and gore. These are people who are doing this out of good faith and by an intention to help others. And there is a time when they are done with it. You know when they when they cannot see that anymore. So I think there is a there's a big challenge. We've had to set you know set up a system of uh, after every fatality, our volunteers calling in to speak to a psychologist uh, mandatorily. Mm. Mm. Uh, but attrition is a huge challenge in in maintaining the capacity of the system that we operate. You know, it is said that one of the one of the uh, costs that's paid in disaster relief is by the workers who are exposed to horrible things and who are doing their best to deal, but they wind up often with, with uh, deep challenges, uh, traumatic memories and so on. Uh, and so that becomes a part of your challenge too. Uh, yeah, that because, you know, you press a button and there aren't enough people available in the system <coughs> to mobilize and yep. that's a big challenge. Right? So the tech piece can be there. It can look nice and fancy and, you know, uh, you know very, very uh, efficient. But if the backend doesn't work, the actual people on the ground are not able to get to the scene, I think that's a huge problem. So one other thing, we're going to come to your questions here, so uh, be ready for that. Uh, that's coming soon. Um, one other aspect of this, it seemed to me, is that um, one thing you're doing is, in effect, mobilizing bystander behavior. And you're finding a method of getting people engaged, which is that they sign up, they put the app on their phone, they agree that they, if somebody had a bleed near them, they would try to respond to it. Um, they'll only do that a certain number of times before they, they're, in effect, burned out, as you said. But, but one way of thinking about what you're doing is trying to figure out how do we engage people in a way that will allow them to be mobilized. This is a huge problem in all kinds of different uh, emergency and other circumstances where people you know, stand by because they don't know what to do or they don't want to be involved or whatever else. And so I think it, the interesting feature of the problem that you set out because of this unfortunate incident you know, you know, with your cousin uh, that uh, brought you into, in effect, what is behavioral modification, uh, mobilizing. And, but it's not... So it, it, the one problem is that the people have to know that there's uh, somebody to respond to. That's the information problem, which is relatively easier in some sense. Uh, and then there's the problem of actually getting the people to do this. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, any other insights that you want to share on, uh, on that set of questions? Or let's just go to, to uh, more general questions. Okay, what are your questions? How about these guys? Nick? Uh, Thanks for uh, all your presentations. I'm interested in the um, kind of privacy issues. That you've, oh, thanks. Um, I'm interested in the privacy issues that you've had to deal with uh, utilizing these technologies. So I could see Piotr in your situation. Uh, volunteers, you have their information, and they're concerned with that information potentially going to the police. I don't know if that's one of the issues. And then Doug in the case management system, you're collecting a lot of information on on, on disaster victims and survivors, and how do they feel? Uh, um, about you having that information and then also you being able to, are you able to provide that information to other service providers um, or is there some type of referral process? So just privacy issues in general around technology. So one of the the key components, it's a huge issue, huge issue around case management. Um, and we put a lot of thought and, and time into it. So one of the... Uh, uh, 
one of the key tenets of, and there are a tremendous number of not just privacy issues, but ethical issues as, as well, to, to, to go to Enzo's point. Um, but one of the key tenets of case management is the concept of informed consent, that uh, you that the uh, client is, um, uh, that no action is taken without an informed consent, that not only their consent, but that they're actually well-educated and they, they truly understand what it is that they are, are uh, agreeing to, including the, the release of information. Um, a lot of the programs also have their own, so if you're applying for several things, that you actually have to have consent forms submitted as part of the application process that um, uh, for, uh, for the release of information, especially when that's uh, true for around a lot of the financial information. It's very true when you get into all, anything to do with medical or mental health issues. You're dealing with HIPAA and all of, the, of those forms. So there's a whole set of, of issues that you have to comply with. Um, in terms of the collection of data and the privacy of the data, um, one of the reasons we actually worked with the, the and uh, with Salesforce is it actually has uh, a tremendous n- number of levels of uh, of safety and security in the system, including it's actually a very secure system for storage of, of data. Businesses use it all the time for very sensitive information. Um, but it also allows for levels of security so that certain people don't have access to certain kinds of information. So um, a good example is uh, health information and mental health information are not available to all case managers. You, you can't, as a case manager, you can't just go in and look up someone else's records. And even as a case manager, you might not have access to certain pieces of, of information. So the Salesforce allows for record level security and based on the user profile. Um, it also allows us to create rubber rooms so we can create, uh, give people access to certain pieces of information. They never see anything or even know that there's other data out there um, in that, that process. But it's a, it's a major piece of any kind. And then, of course, training and guidelines of standards and practices for um, we we follow the um, American Society of Case Managers uh, eth- set of ethical guidelines that are used that are fairly standard for social work and for medical case management uh, as well. So, Doug, what kind of an entity were you that you came under HIPAA? Because uh, you're not a governmental entity, you're not you weren't doing this on a commercial basis, so you weren't. It's the you're not an insurer, right? But we're storing medical information. Yeah, which was voluntarily given to you. Voluntarily given, but you still are required to uh, to protect that information. 
Enzo, did you run into the similar issues about privacy? I mean, I think this is probably one of the, this maybe the single biggest issue um, in the humanitarian field. Uh, I, the privacy of information is a is a massive uh, problem, especially when it comes to things like call record data, but also when it, it also applies to to imagery. It applies to use of mobile devices for for spending cash or money, um, people's buying behaviors, um, their their location. Um, all sorts of things, uh, it, and it spans everything from the uh, informed consent of the person, not basically lack of informed consent often in, in the collection of the data, but then there are issues around the storage of the data, accessing the data, use of the data, um, that these are all massive issues in the, in the humanitarian field that people are just be, now beginning to sort of grapple with. And then you have the even even more uh, complicated factor of it spanning international borders, so you're dealing with mm. regulation, many different countries' regulations. So it's it's a it's a tremendous issue. Paish, you dealt with this issue in terms of the anon an anonymity of the Good Samaritans. Were there other privacy issues that also came up in your? No. So we um, so before the Good Samaritan law came through, uh, all the volunteers were citizens who were nominated by the police. So we basically we turned the problem on its head and we said that, okay, if people are afraid of the police, let's get the police to nominate people so they get a sense of confidence that they will not be harassed with that happening. So, uh, so the police already has information about who they've nominated and all those things. As far as the victims are concerned, uh, the recording of their, their, their details only happens at the hospital level. Uh, so volunteers don't have access to that, that mm -hmm. kind of information to the medical system. Other questions, please. Hello. Um, I come from Nepal, so I was there for the uh, the earthquake, the aftermath, everything. And um, it's great that the army was able to use that information. Um, but at the same time, they were also banned drones. Uh, so they're like, ah, we can't do that. So I guess what I, what I would like to for you guys to talk about is how much are these government agencies able to, like, stretch themselves during this, like, time of chaos. Um, how would you um, think about this or help us think about it? Uh, no, thank you for your question. I think it's, a, it's an excellent one. Um, I think it really varies uh, from, from country to country, depending in part on the... Um, uh, how uh, robust uh, the civil society is within the country. In the Philippines, for example, absolutely everyone knows something about, has direct experience with, or is somehow involved in disaster preparedness uh, and dealing with disasters simply because they're hit with disasters all of the time. I don't think the same is quite true uh, with Nepal, and even though it was well known that an earthquake um, was likely, uh, it, it, it is in a country that, apart from landslides, uh, is, is hit with major natural disasters on a, on a regular basis. So I think um, the particular sort of social and political, especially context in which the disaster happened, um, made for certain challenges. But the Nepal Army was by far, I think, the most capable on the ground responder. Uh, I think there were some really interesting developments with um, sort of ad, ad hoc and spontaneous organization of youth groups to do uh, some of the response in the early days, and some of those remained on and continued to do some other sorts of work uh, in, the, in the aftermath. Um, but I think uh, the fact in Nepal that you, ha you hadn't had, um, for example, elections, regional elections for 15 years or however long, longer, um, that you were in the midst of writing a constitution at the, the national level, all of those things were major uh, uh, 
hindrances uh, to, I think, an, uh, a fully effective uh, response. Uh, so part of it was simply familiarity, uh, and part of it was a political process. Um, part of it is, I think, um, not a, a civil society that's not as accustomed to and has, does not have as many groups and organizations that deal with disaster as you might find in other places. It does raise an interesting question, though, about how much foresight we can have about the kinds of tools and technology that would be helpful in the instant of disaster. So one of the features I mentioned before that in all three of your examples, a, a critical element is that it's a play on information. That, that And often in disaster circumstances, you suddenly have a circumstance where there's a lot of important information that's highly decentralized. So And each person knows a little bit about what's happening around them. And what we want is an aggregate version of that so we can figure out how to allocate resources, where to respond, and so on. And it's hard to get from one of those to the other, but technology seems like a platform to do it, although it creates issues around uh, privacy. Uh, but we could imagine some a, a kind of general tool set that would be likely to be useful against that problem. So distributed people, lots of information, we need to aggregate. Uh, so how much of that can we do in advance that, and have ready versus how much of that do you just inevitably, as in Haiti, you Shahidi, as in Nepal, you had to come up with the, they had to, in effect, invent this system and engage the army. Uh, how much of it do we have to do in the moment? How much can we do ahead of time? So I think there are, there are lots of efforts to do things ahead of time. And um, in the international humanitarian system, it's, it's the Office for the Coordinator of Humanitarian Affairs that has sort of the responsibility for overall coordination yeah. uh, in a disaster. So they are often uh, looking for ways to more systematically uh, retrieve information, um, put, get that information into um, maps and other products that are usable throughout the various clusters that are organized in a major, in a major disaster. But that, that's all fine and good, and I think there's a lot of advances that have been made in that regard, but you still, have, you still come up against um, very particular national contexts in which those things are happening. So uh, it's not like a, a single solution or a single way of working or a single process. Um, right. you, you can anticipate how that's going to work in every single environment because it changes. changes in part, um, dep it depends in part upon the country itself and its own uh, regulatory system, but it also depends in part on the level of conflict, for example, uh, in a country. The, the level of access you can actually get to the people that uh, are in need. So <laughs> while processes are made more efficient by the, by the international agencies that work on them um, on a regular basis, and while the field itself is in the process of professionalizing, uh, you still are operating in a national context. It sounds like that is a recipe for some degree of developing generic tools in advance, but that always will require customization to the particular circumstances in the moment. And I think, Doug, you would say the same about disaster recovery. One, one other way to put this question is in terms of the scalability of these solutions. Yeah. So you've got a pretty general piece of software based in Salesforce that handles an awful lot of different kinds of programs that in any other American disaster, you have many of the same things. Right. Would require some customization, but you'd have a pretty good start. So how, how would you describe that in terms so of... So actually, this, a, a great example of this is going on at, at the moment is uh, uh, the, the program on crisis leadership has had a, a uh, relationship with and has worked with the uh, advised the city of San Francisco for 
several years now on preparing in for a disaster, uh, spe- specifically on the recovery side, but pr- the concept of advanced recovery, being able to recover in advance, uh, planning to recover in advance of the disaster. Um, and one of the key recommendations that we've made over the years is the implementation of, uh, in advance, is of a case management system. Uh, so it's uh, it's already there and available after when the disaster strikes, which is an inevitability in San Francisco. Um, and uh, instead of actually using the Salesforce system, they uh, actually have a relation. The city has a relationship with Google, and <laughs> Google is doing pro bono work and is uh, building a case management software system for the city of San Francisco in advance of a disaster to be used after a, a disaster. Since the word Google appeared in that sentence, should we imagine that this is a generic tool that they will be have, be available to Seattle as well? Or? Um, you never know because the program in which it's being developed under Google, it's people are uh, sort of leave their day jobs and, and are seconded to the this thing and then uh, will eventually go back to their um, their things. So it's, it's tough to know whether Google itself as a corporation will actually use that and leverage it to other things or whether it will just be a one-off. But, um, uh, but certainly there will be familiar Familiarity at Google with these things, and a lot of the tech companies, whether it's Salesforce or or Google, Facebook, etc., they're all really trying to understand how what their sort of role is in post disasters and in in creating some of these these systems. Please, other questions. Uh, hi, my name is David Campbell. Thanks very much for having the okay, he's having the session. I'm the founder and chairman of a rather unusual organization called All Hands Volunteers, which basically is disaster response organization. We one of the, the problem I would see, and then I'll give you a little background, is to how do we get acceptance? How do we get donor support for building culturally sensitive, safe structures? So we've completed seven schools in Nepal after the earthquake. We have four more under funding. We've had to go out and get that. $200,000 per school funding. It, there is no organized funding source for those schools. We stayed and built 20 schools in Haiti after the 2010 earthquake. Again, we had to go and get individual donors for every one of those. In Louisiana today, there's a whole new situation with the flooding of April where there were 150,000 homeowners have applied for FEMA support for the April flooding. Louisiana has done a rather innovative program called Shelter in Place to give grants to commercial contractors of 15 grand to bring the homes back. But the contractors came back and said, we can only afford to do it for homes that had two feet of flooding or less, which is 15 percent of the 150,000 homes. So they're celebrating the success. The 10, they're about to finish their 10,000th home, which is simply make the shell livable. It's not repair it. It's put in a floor, power in a toilet, and then the people have to finish on their own. But, but 100 plus thousand homes still have no response coming. The, it seems to me it's great that we're focusing on recovery because to me it's the under followed area. It has huge costs and no good funding source. And as great as the Nepal Army was in the short term or OCHA is in coordination, they're gone after three months. And the recovery issues are years and years without a reliable, smart funding source. 
So if you gentlemen could just solve that problem well, for us All I can say is you're right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. You've, you've identified one of the, the uh, greatest challenges for disaster recovery uh, around the world, in country after country around the world. But you know, here at home in the, in the United States, there's still no reliable funding source for um, uh, for for recovery. I'm very familiar with the shelter-in-place programs. In fact, uh, after Hurricane Sandy in New York, there was a very similar uh, program, and we've actually done a lot of work with the city of San Francisco on for one. And it, but it's it's just to do minimum ha habitability. It's just to get people. It's it's the concept of keep them sheltered. It's it's a shelter-in-place. It's keep them sheltered in place as opposed to doing FEMA trailers or uh, uh, displaced persons camps, et, et cetera. But, and it's really not a recovery uh, program at, at all. It's a very short-term uh, uh, thing to, to minimize disruption but not actually do long-term recovery. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, disaster risk reduction. So, what happens before the disaster as well uh, is also very under underfunded. Um, but, I, I, I mean, I would point to two sort of developments in the international humanitarian system that I'm, I'm sure you're, you're very familiar with, and I have no idea uh, what impact they'll have on long term funding or access to funding for, for recovery. Um, one is a move towards greater localization of aid, so away from this idea of having. Um, ever-increasing amounts of uh, attention paid to making the international humanitarian system more effective, but looking at ways in which we can scale back the organizations that are having to respond to the agencies and working with the agencies that are already, local agencies that are already on the ground and looking at how to um, uh, further capacitate those, those organizations. The second one is this uh, grand bargain uh, uh, idea that came out of the uh, World Humanitarian Summit, whereby funds from donors would be made more accessible. So the argument was always that you know donors are only going to work with those agencies that have certain reporting mechanisms in place that they know well, etc. So supposedly out of this grand bargain there's going to be easier access to funding by those organizations that may not have previously had access to it. Don't know, don't know if that's going to be a real thing. Just uh, one of the ideas we have uh, is that what the insurance industry is doing is that they are they're putting together some sort of based on um, the premiums that they receive. And I don't remember the, the percentage of that, but that pool is, uh, is, is one, of the, one of the mandates of that pool is, is to use for long-term recovery uh, uh, aspect. So uh, I think at the moment it's about a billion dollars, but it's they're just pooling money into it so that they can eventually can be used for long-term recovery. So insurance industry has a very critical role to play in the WR. Recovery within the places where the premiums are coming from or unrelated because of the fall? Completely unrelated. Ecuador. So yeah, so insurance, uh, you know, penetration in India is very, very low. Uh, so the industry, so this is an industry government initiative where I think the government is putting in some money, the industry is putting in some money, but the idea is to create a pool that can be used for, uh, for paying for some of these things. Uh, I can find more information and share it with you. Other questions, please. Uh, a couple of references and then my real question. Um, 
There is a group called Recovers.org, which deals with municipalities. Uh, I haven't seen them in the last couple of years, but deals with municipalities to prepare for recovery before the disaster happens. So that might be another way of looking at this kind of stuff, another reference. Um, there's SafeCast in, in Japan, which now has uh, probably the largest data set on radiation after Fukushima. And not only do they build radiation monitors, but they're also talking about other monitoring equipment, environmental monitoring equipment, which can, is portable, comes down to a smartphone, things like that. So the, the technologies that are becoming available for this kind of stuff and for citizen monitoring of situations can be very powerful. The word resilience is not only for the disaster and relief community, but it's also for the, for the environmental community. Right? It, in climate change, people talk about resilience all the time. And I'm wondering about the, the cross-fertilization between that. Because you know, we know there's going to be a weather disaster. Doesn't matter what your what your ideas about climate change or science are. We know there's going to be a blizzard or a storm or a flood or a drought. How do you prepare for that? How do you become resilient for that in the face of disaster? How do you prepare for that? And think about about that not only in terms of disaster preparedness, but also in terms of environmental responsibility and perhaps raising the standard of living for people without diminishing the earth. I think in particularly for our purposes, and how does technology enable that better? <laughs> I mean, it, it is the name of my program, so um, although I have to say, uh, so for anyone looking at resilience, you'll, you'll know that it, as a term, um, it, it has come to encompass almost everything, so it's hard <laughs> to sort of disambiguate what it actually means. I was a little bummed out the other day when I was watching um, some PBS show with um, my four-year-old daughter where they were talking about it building resilient minds, and I was just, you know, like, Dora the Explorer is resilient. So um, I, I don't know if I have to change the name of my program now, but, um, uh, but I mean, but the basic, the basic essence of it, I think, is, is, is extremely important, and that is um, not look for... So I think there's a word of caution with resilience because you, you don't want it, it you don't want it to be seen as excusing people who have a responsibility to respond from responding um, by saying oh you know the community's fine they're very resilient so you know whatever um, but there is something very real I think in preparing for being cognizant of the uh, uh, vulnerabilities that are within the community and finding ways to work within the community to prepare for. Um, the ine inevitable disaster. So there is something real in the con in the concept of resilience. I think it's just become a term that it's it's hard to disambiguate all the different strands and all the different methods that are being used, um, and because the word has come to be come to define so many different things. Um, but there is a some sort of essence in the term um, that is important, and I think that essence is one of um, uh, sort of community driven and and self uh, motivated preparation <coughs> for disaster um, and yeah so and so so where do you see technology as particularly important in right. helping with that right that was your question that I didn't answer um, 
I, th- I think it, has, it probably plays many roles. So one for, for sure is in just in basic communication, right? In, in early warning systems, um, it it's, plays a critical role. It uh, plays a, a critical role during the disaster response in identifying um, uh, members of families that are, that are missing, for example. Uh, it plays an important role in collecting uh, data. Um, so using whatever form of digital data collection tool you might be using, to acquire data um, more quickly and more accurately than we've been able to in the past, and to being able to transfer that into an ability to come up with needs assessments that are that are more accurate. Uh, it's being used in ways that are um, making more efficient and more speedy the actual delivery of aid. Uh, and ultimately, it's going to be used in ways, I think, that make societies more resilient by building in systems that make societies less vulnerable to disasters in the first place. So going back to um, the amazing uh, example in the first one, we can imagine a day where we're not driving our cars anymore. It's not that far off. Um, That's going to probably reduce traffic deaths by hundreds of thousands around the globe. That simply is going to happen. And similarly, I think technologies can permeate many ways in which we do things to to reduce vulnerabilities. Um, it could be in chips in buildings to identify damage um, to the buildings. Instead of having to go out and individually damp- assess um, bu- buildings, you could have chips that are inside buildings with sensors where you can have an immediate read. Um, so things like that are, are inevitable. So I think technology plays so if we think about So if we think about the examples <clears throat> you're describing and the ways in which uh, technology plays into that, uh, you mentioned before that, that one of the trends in the humanitarian relief area in general, but it's, I think it's true in disaster management in general, is toward a more decentralized system, uh, to a system that's trying to take better advantage of decentralized assets, bystanders, uh, people doing their own work in their own community, 90%, 99% percent of the work that gets done to re- repair any community is done by the people who live there yes. uh, with a modest amount of help or structure or whatever from outside. So if that's true, so one of the challenges of a decentralized system is that a lot of people each know a little bit and there's other important information, aggregated information that would be important to know. The technology has to be an answer to how you bridge, how you get the best of both of those. And it seems to me that's really the technology future that we're still you know, trying to figure out what are the platforms, what are the applications, how do we do that? It's, it's just mm-hmm. the kind of work that Piyush was doing. A couple of uh, additional questions, and then I'm going to ask each of our panelists to take a minute and and offer a benediction to you about what you should go forth and do to save the world. Uh, Please, you haven't had a chance yet. I'm interested in your opinion um, of the use of technology in the context of complex emergencies. Um, specifically with the dimension of um, post-conflict reconstruction. Is that something that you have thought of um, regarding the use of technology? And if so, how would you think of changing or adapting technology to make it applicable in situations of complex emergencies? So in terms of... uh Post-conflict reconstruction, I have to uh, admit that that's not my area of expertise. And um, instead of trying to pretend that I, I, I know, I, I, I think it's best for me to, to say it's, it's not an area of, of expertise that, that, that I have. So, um, I, think, I think use of technology in complex emergencies during the complex emergency is highly um, uh, it, it, it can be quite dangerous. So a lot of attention has to be paid towards uh, 
the ethical uses of, of, of those technologies as potential benefits, but it also carries with it real potential dangers. But in the post-conflict setting, uh, um, I think documentation, for example, of um, abuses, of loss of property, of all sorts of things, technology can play a real role uh, in the in the post-conflict uh, justice, um, uh, going for justice from what actually transpired during the conflict itself. So I think it plays a really important role there. Um, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure there are many others. Again, I, I I tend to work more in in natural disaster settings and less in complex emergencies. But I can imagine that there are probably many other uh, ways in which technology is being used. But I think, in, at least in terms of documentation of, of abuses during the conflict itself, I would think that would be uh, an important one. All right. I'm struck. In wait, wait for the mic. The presentations that they're. I'm struck in listening to the presentations that there's an important difference between what Biersch talked about and what Enzo talked about, the kinds of situations. In uh, Biersch's situation, um, there is a fairly common, tragically common um, issue that you're trying to deal with, traffic uh, accidents and injured people. Um, it's widespread. The technology that you've devised for doing it is pretty simple, so people can, and cheap, so there many people can be trained to use it. And there's an institution that is locally uh, distributed around the country, the police, that can aid and be the place where this information is collected and aggregated and where there's some local control that can be used for it. So it's both a crowdsourced uh, kind of information and it also has an institutional base. In the situations that Enzo is talking about, particularly natural disasters, especially in places that infrequently experience them, like Nepal, uh, but even in countries that do experience them frequently, there will be places that don't. The problem of getting technology out there, distributed, training the people to be able to use it, um, having an institution locally based uh, that is able to help those distributed citizens use it is a much bigger problem. And I think that, that when we think about how to prepare for those kinds of problems, there's a special issue for technology of how you get it into the hands of people, teach them how to use it, and have them be ready for it in the very infrequent times, perhaps with many years in between, uh, when these kinds of problems arise. I, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. I mean, in a place like the Philippines, so you have an opportunity to do that because they are struck by disasters so frequently. So there's, a, there's an ability to think about how different processes, different technologies could be adapted for future response. I think it's a little bit more challenging in a place like Nepal, but um, I, I, I mean, I think the key issue is to understand what technologies are already being used by people on the ground in their daily lives and what, which ways in which they, those things can be leveraged in times of disaster. Um, but, but you could do the more sort of proactive thing of figuring out how to distribute new technologies in a place like the Philippines because there's, there are going to be many, many opportunities to, to utilize it. But again, it's, it really does depend on the, on the context. In a way, if you think about the history, I mean, you're already seeing that because the Yushahidi, you, you, you observe that what happened in Nepal or one of the things that happened in Nepal, was a Yushahidi instance was mm -hmm. created. Yep. What does that mean? Well, 
uh, that meant somebody had thought ahead of time about what that is, and it's kind of a generic tool. It really evolved a lot during the Haiti uh, earthquake, and a bunch of people said, well, here's a, here's a, a problem that's right now, right here, and technology can help with it. And then they realized, but yeah, but this is a, a recurring issue, and here's a set of tools that you can actually use to apply to it. And, and there are enough people around who understood that, that somebody in Nepal figured it out and, and was able to apply it. So that seems to me a hopeful sign for the way in which technology, people are thinking about developing technological tools that can actually be useful in these circumstances. That you don't have to build everything ahead of time. And, and I would agree with, with what you said. Is there's... there's the technology in terms of propagation of, of technology, whether it's in the consumer world or the business world or in, in disaster uh, uh, management, um, often happens in sort of fits and starts, and it happens by word of mouth, and it happens by people seeing, uh, oh, you've done that, oh, here, I could try it over here. And so it, what we've seen is, well, it, it may not be a nice, smooth, linear growth curve. It's, it's very choppy. We actually have seen, if you look back over the last decade or, or 15 years, a, a really uh, quite impressive march of technology into the disaster management space. And that will just continue, and I believe it actually will snowball as, as it, it gains momentum and more and more people become familiar and adopt and see what other people are doing and refine it. Etc. So, for example, I actually welcome Google working on it because it's more minds, more people thinking about the issue, uh, and um, and I think the more cities, the more countries, the more NGOs, etc., that uh, have experience, it just sort of propagates through and becomes commonplace. The 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 real measure of success of whether technology has been adopted is when people cease to stop thinking about it and talking about it. It's just baked into the, the everyday lives of, of emergency managers. So it seems to me, though, that one of the challenges is that uh, this is a standard feature of the way technology evolves. So we have a new technology, new sort of general capability, and a bunch of different ways of using that arise. And then there's kind of a market shakeout, and a few of them emerge as kind of the dominant solutions. And it's not always obvious after the fact that the right ones emerged. You know, that, that the ones that, had, that came to have a high market share and came to be the ones that we used again and again were, in fact, the ones that were necessarily the best. So I wonder if there's anything we can do to shape, you know, which ones we really need, which ones would have the most utility, the most value, and to work collectively to try to make sure that the, the technological solutions to those issues are among the ones that really do emerge. Well, I was actually fascinated by what you were saying at HHI is, is one of the things we've been working on a set of standards. And yeah, um, I think whether whether it's professional organizations or organizations like HHI or consortia, et cetera, coming together to set standards, uh, both for technology standards but also around some of the ethical and privacy issues is an important uh component of making sure that technology is adopted and is adopted well. One final question from our audience, then I'm going to ask each of our uh, distinguished panelists to offer us a benediction. You get the last say. Thank you. 
Um, I first want to respond to the, the previous question about the using technology in conflicts, even though she seems like she left. Um, so I worked in Yemen until a few months ago, and I was leading a team of monitoring evaluation. So we introduced some of the, you know, like uh, we use technology for different stuff, like automation of data collection and, you know, monitoring um, like mobile surveys and also, you know, also like food tracking. So I would say, even though I agree with you, like there are a lot of, you know, like stuff that we have to be aware of in the conflict setting and using technology, but there's so much like room for um, innovation because like we have so much like, you know, access constraint in, in conflict settings. So mm-hmm. that's one thing I want to say. Uh, and I have a question about the case management system. So as a humanitarian worker myself, I totally agree with you, like your problem identif- identification, like working in silos and all that. But like, it seems like um, your solution is based on the assumption that a lot of this like service delivery agency um, just like put out their resources, not necessarily saying, okay, like, because when we do needs, we, we also do needs assessment as a humanitarian agencies, right? And then we have all sorts of targeting criteria. And then we want to, we have, we're very clear on which, you know, like segment of beneficiary to target or which clients, you know, the problem to address. But it seems like you're kind of duplicating efforts of the needs assessment. And so how do you, how do you actually manage that um, yeah, duplication? Uh, it actually, uh, so you're absolutely right. And um, it's, you know, I, I sort of talked about in the longer version of, of this, I go into a lot on the service delivery side of the fact that, um, uh, you know, they have very specific target target audiences and clients. It's not just eligibility criteria, but it's uh, as well as limited resources. So therefore, it's how do they, you know, apportion those, those resources. Um, how does a case management system sort of interface with this, you know, uh, very complicated and then often quirky or limited set of uh, things that uh, set of resources that have limitations on it uh, and constraints. Um, essentially, what happens is the case managers develop a lot of very close relationships with their counterparts at the at the um, uh, the various agencies or organizations delivering the the disaster assistance, um, and and tend not to duplicate, but to work with, and you actually end up with a relationship where it's very much like, hey. I know who the kinds of clients you're looking for that are going to work. That so, for example, in the Salvation Army in New Orleans had an Environu program that was had very specific criteria that they were looking for of who would could enroll in the the program, and the case manager works with them, gets to know what those sets of criteria are, what they're looking for, and becomes a feeder system to to them, and becomes the hey, look, we know who you're you're working for, uh, who you're looking for, and it helps. And what we find is over time, actually, the service providers, um, the different NGOs, departments, agencies, actually end up loving the process because they actually pick up the phone and say, hey, look, uh, we've got, you know, three openings for whatever. Do you have people to, to you know, who can 
can fill that. So, for example, we work a lot with, in New Orleans, we worked a lot with uh, Habitat for Humanity and Rebuilding Together, all of which are fairly limited, you know, they have limited availability, but uh, they're looking for people who've already, they know when the case manager says, this person will meet all of your criteria. They don't have to waste their time going through the whole application process to find out that someone, oh, no, oh, they don't meet the criteria. And uh, so it actually works, uh, for the most part, is a, a very positive things. There's also a lot in the U.S. We use a lot of the long-term recovery committees, which are sort of round tables of providers, and uh, often the case managers uh, send representatives to the, the round tables to go through or cases are presented and literally providers sort of say yes, oh that fits for me and that kind of thing and it, it works that way. So there's a much more integration with, because a lot of the organizations have their own case managers but, and there's a close interaction with it. This again illustrates the information point which is that's the scarce commodity uh, right. is knowing the, the facts that can allow you to match these things up. Uh, I think we've had a great afternoon. Uh, it was a really interesting discussion. A lot of interesting insights from our panelists. I want to give each of you just a moment to, you've got a, a room full of uh, emerging leaders, people interested in this domain. Um, what would you tell them to do? What's your, what's your advice? How do they get involved? How do they push forward on the, in the directions that we've talked about this afternoon? So I'd say, uh, uh, you know, technology is, um, so when you look at a problem, I think it's, it's important to look at the framework that, that governs the problem. And technology, more often than not, will play the role of the enabler um, in that, in, in finding a solution to that, and not the center of it. So, oftentimes, you think of the technology first, and then we say, okay, where can this be applied, and you know, what can we do with it? But I think if we look at the problem first, and look at technology, policy, and community together, uh, I think that's that's where the solution lies. Is the intersection of the three of them, um, and also technology. Um, has to be thought about when we talk when we think about scaling up internet. Mm. So today, uh, we you know up till last, in the last four years we trained about ten thousand people. In the next four years, we want to train a hundred thousand people. A hundred thousand people can't be trained by trainers. You have to get technology in at some level. Mm. So scaling up will now happen through technology. So the tech is not the center of it, but it's definitely an enabler and will be used for scaling up. That's incredibly helpful, and that's like a unpaid service announcement for the Kennedy School curriculum, uh, because you, you, what you, I think you just said is we need people who are technologically savvy and understand the technology and understand that that's not the whole problem, but you got to fit it into the other the context of the whole system and how it operates. And if you can't figure out that, it's not going anywhere. So, well, congratulations on your uh, success to date and on the hundred thousand yet to come uh, in the next few years, Enzo. So I think uh, technology is permeating every uh, facet and every aspect of our social lives and of society broadly. It's certainly having a major impact on the humanitarian field. Um, I think it holds tremendous promise, and we've already realized major gains um, as a result of it. Um, I think it is important that we also consider what those implications are um, on people uh, who don't have access to all of the technologies that some do. Um, but I think um, an important feature of uh, in emergency environments 
environment is understanding what's actually happening. So um, while there are many places where technology can be tested and there are lots of organizations now looking at ways of supporting innovation in technology, um, I, I think there's actually a dearth of research that happens uh, in humanitarian settings. So I think um, it's actually important to think about uh, those moments as moments for, for research and understanding what's happening in a way that will then inform um, what sorts of technologies um, are useful, uh, which ones have uh, potential, which ones are being used to great effect already, uh, and what the potential dangers are as well. That's very helpful. Douglas. Okay. Um, I, to me, especially in the field of disaster recovery, um, what, what we find is uh, that, that there are pockets of recovery or disproportional uh, recovery. So certain people recover much better than, than other people. And technology is a way that we can ensure that disadvantaged populations are not left out of the recovery process and that we can identify and, and help people who, um, uh, who, if left to themselves, uh, will, will not recover as well as other more resourced or more networked uh, people. So that's actually the counterpoint to Enzo's observation. Uh, on the one hand, we have to worry about people who are excluded from technology, but on the other hand, technology can be a democratizing source of access uh, to things that people wouldn't have reached before in a world where they didn't otherwise have the tools. So that's a wonderful array of different things for us to work on. Um, let me thank you again for all being here. Uh, this is, I thought, a, a really terrific discussion, uh, so thank you for coming out. I hope you enjoyed that and found some thoughts that you want to pursue. Uh, let me ask you to join me in thanking the organizers once again. That would be Natalie Hall and Yoko and uh, Yang and David Giles, uh, who put enormous amounts of effort into making this happen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. And please join me in thanking our panel.